Viking Voyages, Episode 1, Danube. Debbie Wiseman reads from the fictional diary of an English musician and piano teacher. Elizabeth Drinkwater, your hat, your hat, take off now. A Hungarian immigration official sternly looks me up and down as I remove my oversized straw bonnet. He refers back and forth to my unflattering photograph in my passport, turning the blank pages with detached indifference. Are you travelling alone? What is the purpose of your visit to Budapest? Yes, I reply, I am travelling by myself. I will be joining a river cruise on the Danube. He breaks into a smile and nods in approval. The river is particularly beautiful at this time of year. You are a very lucky English lady. Enjoy your visit. He waves me on and I walk through customs, emerging from the airport into bright sunlight. I can scarcely contain my excitement at the prospect of visiting Budapest. After a lifetime teaching piano lessons to children and adults, a career that composer Edward Elgar eloquently described as turning a grindstone with a dislocated shoulder, I am determined to explore fresh pastures, meet new friends, have new experiences. When I first catch sight of the mighty Danube bisecting Hungary's capital, I am instantly awestruck. Rivers fascinate me. They are the arteries of history, the lifeblood of the cities along their route. Before joining the ship, I venture into the city. In Heroes Square, I make a slow, full 360-degree turn, taking everything in feeling pride in myself that I have made it here. Armed with a map, a guidebook, sunglasses and a thermos of water, I am ready to explore. I start to walk, trying to take in as much as I can. Gazebos, playgrounds and bandstands flank footpaths as young couples sit entwined on shaded benches like living statues. The citizens of Budapest appear to love walking. Elderly men stride about in long black jackets, adorned with gold buttons, press-dressed trousers, smart shoes and little black hats or bonnets. Many exercise their dogs. Hungarians love their dogs. Everybody seems to have at least one. This hot afternoon, much of the city's population appears to have relocated to the lively Great Market Hall, a grand indoor market on three floors housed inside a beautiful Gothic building. This place is where you can try authentic local snacks, such as Hungarian scones and gourmet jams. A barrage of traders dragging sharp, pointy, fully laden trolleys in their wake bears down upon me. Watch out! Watch out! they shout. At least I assume that's what they're shouting as I don't speak Hungarian. According to a venerable English adage, the resourceful, energetic, high-achieving Hungarians are the only people who can enter a revolving door behind you and come out of it in front. 
vendors inside the great market hall, which thankfully does not have a revolving door, but rather a spectacular cathedral-style arch at its entrance, concentrate mostly on clothing and in large quantities. Working my way through the market requires strength and patience, but at the far end I'm rewarded with delicious smells wafting from food stalls. Diners stand at chin-high counters, narrowly avoiding being mown down by porters pushing giant boxes on wheels. Many stand around smoking and chatting. The sound of Russian, Ukrainian, Slovak, Romanian, Serbian, Turkish, Chinese and Vietnamese voices mingle with Hungarian, creating a heady, exotic mixture. Traders present a mix of fine traditional cuisine, goulash and wild game, with a fine selection of local wines to match, all accompanied by a Hungarian folk band. A stocky, bearded violinist leads the group, performing with heartfelt passion and exhilarating virtuosity. Behind him sits a musician playing what looks like a huge dulcimer. This is a cymbalum the national instrument of Hungary. Around 125 steel and copper strings stretch across a trapezium-shaped wooden box on legs. The strings are flamboyantly struck by two sticks, shaped like giant curved cotton buds, producing an evocative sound, something akin to plucking strings inside a piano. The violinist develops a melody shaping extravagant phrasing, whilst the cymbalum player sets up a rhythm controlling giddy acceleration and dramatic deceleration, which makes the overall effect quite magical.
One of the most scenic walks in Budapest takes me across an old and iconic cast-iron suspension bridge, Sejny Chain Bridge. It spans the Danube, connecting Buda and Pest. Magnificent lion figures guard its entrances and a pair of giant arched towers meet at its midsection. It appears that this is a place for romantics, especially at dusk. The bridge is illuminated just before the sun dramatically sets over Buddha Hill. In an age-old lover's tradition, couples fasten love locks to the side of the bridge and throw away the key into the water below. I gaze at the young couples with a tinge of envy, perhaps regret. They seem so self-contained, self-sufficient. As I try to stop myself from sinking into self-pity by focusing on the beautiful river, I'm aware of a presence at my elbow and a small, gravelly voice addressing me. Lady, please, I give you your fortune. The future, I tell you all. It is a diminutive elderly woman perhaps Roma. I'm irritated. I've always believed fortune-telling to be utter nonsense. I turn, intending to send her away, but there's a plaintive look in her eyes, a wistful, pleading look that makes me hesitate. What's the harm of a meaningless prediction for some loose change that may mean she'll be able to eat tonight? In that moment, wordlessly, the woman reaches out and gently takes my hand, palm upwards, and studies it intently. I indulge her as she mutters in stilted English. Most of what she says is unintelligible, but I think I hear man, water, possibly champagne, or is it pain? And... At the end, inexplicably, hello, I think. Maybe yellow. That doesn't make sense either. No matter, I smile and gracefully withdraw my hand. The woman's other arm stretches forward. I reach for my purse and drop some coins into her hand. She nods, smiles and shuffles away. I've done my good deed for the day and complete my walk across the bridge as the sun begins to set behind me. In the dying light, I come across some bronze shoes scattered along the riverbank, very close to the Parliament. A smile crosses my face since they look adorable. But a glance at my guidebook tells me that they carry a deeper meaning. This memorial was created to honour people who were killed in Budapest during World War II and depicts their footwear left behind on the bank where they were dispatched into the river. I've seen many memorials in different cities across the world erected to those that have sadly lost their lives. But this one deeply moves me. I sit on one of the nearby benches watching visitors quietly lighting candles. Once safely back on board the ship, I feel a refreshing breeze on the deck. 
it is time I decide for a nightcap in the bar. I tentatively start a conversation with an American from Texas who owns his own lake back home. I overhear guests talking about canals and bridges. I assume they're discussing the sights I'll encounter on our voyage. I'm amused to discover they have travelled to Budapest to take advantage of bargain dentistry. A waiter carries a tray towards me on which I discover a glass of champagne. He points to a man sitting at the bar. He's a well-dressed, middle-aged gentleman boasting a full head of thick, neatly manicured black hair. He raises his glass in my direction, mouthing the word, Sante. Somewhat embarrassed, I play nervously with the glass, finishing the drink as swiftly as I'm able, without appearing discourteous. I realise I'm exhausted after a long day of travel and sightseeing, so I slip away, making a descent to my stateroom as the ship begins to move. The next morning, I wake to find that we have moored alongside a tiny dock. A dewy mist hangs over the river, and the sun rises majestically, a glowing ball of vermilion glory. Trees along the riverbank are reflected in the water, and nightingales greet the new day with vibrant song. Except for one small house on the bank, there are no buildings in view. My American friend from yesterday is already casting with his fishing rod, but it's too early for Hungarian fish. I go ashore. A fellow guest tries his hand at a traditional Hungarian horsewhip on sale at a souvenir shop, and the owner shows him how to make it crack. At midday, we are taken to a tasting of Hungarian wines, which have a distinguished history dating back to Roman times. Of the reds, the bull's blood is robust, full-bodied and spicy, a clear winner. I think I feel a little tipsy. The man who sent me champagne last night comes over to introduce himself. Bonsoir, madame. May I join you? I am happy to have company. He's a French doctor named Francois Poisson from Paris. Before long, I happily discover that he's a musician too, albeit an enthusiastic amateur. He's a cellist who plays chamber music with colleagues. He's disparaging about his ability, but I suspect he may well be too modest as he's both intelligent and well-mannered. As the sun sets, splashing red over the sky, we return to the ship and take our drinks outside. We silently watch the stars appear as musicians arrive carrying their instruments. It is a perfect evening to listen to romantic music. We laugh and tell stories, sharing musical anecdotes. It feels easy to be in his company, as if we've known one another for years. Maybe it's the romantic atmosphere, maybe it's the extra glass of wine I perhaps shouldn't have had, but in this moment, there is no other place I would rather be than here with Francois. 
the band start up with a well-known Romanian waltz, a nostalgic melody made popular by Al Jolson called The Anniversary Song. This was a tune that my father used to sing along with me when I was a child. Oh, how we danced on the night we were wed. We vowed our true love, though a word wasn't said. The world was in bloom, there were stars in the skies, except for the few that were there in your eyes. Thank you.
our ship reaches Bratislava. The city has a small, well-kept old town right by the banks of the river. Perched on a hill above is a castle which boasts wonderful views. I climb to the outside of the castle, deciding not to go inside, but am pleasantly surprised to find ornamental gardens just around the back. This is my first experience of a Baroque garden, and I expect it to be artificial and too ordered, just a nice tourist photo opportunity. Surprisingly, it feels very meditative. I pause, sit quietly on a bench and breathe in the tranquility. Here in the garden, I feel complete, devoid of anxiety, almost entirely self-content. My thoughts drift to Francois. Continuing my walk, I take a small detour past a little blue church. It looks like a gingerbread house with icing for decoration. Looking towards the legendary blue waters of the Danube, something catches my eye. It is Francois. He's standing by the riverbank, arm in arm, with a woman. They're smiling, laughing. They look close. As close as I believed I was with him yesterday evening. The woman poses coquettishly for a photograph and smiles adoringly. How could I have been so foolish? I ought to know better at my age than to be swept off my feet by a suave, smooth-talking stranger. My disappointment is replaced by anger and frustration. I am not some starry-eyed teenager. I am a strong, independent woman. I am resolute in my determination not to surrender to despair. I shall shrug off this setback and put my best foot forward. I can see an observation tower perched precariously at the top of a bridge. Getting closer, I see inside the tower there is a restaurant providing stunning views over the locality. To my amazement, right at the top of the tower, there's a skywalk. I'm usually afraid of heights, but now, for some reason, I feel brave enough to climb outside the building with the help, of course, of experienced experts. It is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, an adrenaline-filled, unique way to see the city, 85 metres above the ground, tiptoeing along a precipitous ledge. I must be high on new experiences and the thrill of exploration. Or perhaps it stems from the disappointment of rejection. Our ship arrives early the next morning in Vienna. This city is the principal reason why I have joined the cruise. It is synonymous with classical music and has produced many of the most talented composers and musicians the world has ever heard. Austrians are already walking and biking along paths that stretch along the river. Here, the Danube is a greenish tan colour, still beautiful, and apparently considered safe by a few hardy swimmers. Private pleasure boats ply the river. I stand at a bus stop waiting to board a bus to the centre of Vienna. Suddenly, 
I sense Francois at my side. Elizabeth, where are you going? he asks. To St. Stephen's Cathedral, I reply, as curtly as I can muster. Me too. Do you mind if we walk together? I'd really rather you didn't. I start to move away abruptly, but he takes me gently by the arm. Elizabeth, have I upset you in some way? I'm so sorry if so. Please tell me. I don't indulge him. I inform him that I have seen him with another woman holding hands by the river. Francois laughs and then looks at me intently. My sweet English rose, that lady is my sister. I'm travelling with Marie and my brother-in-law. I'll introduce you. I should have done so already. Entirely my fault. Please forgive me. If I felt foolish before, I feel even more so now. I feel the blushing on my cheeks as I apologise and accept his offer to accompany me to the cathedral. Best foot forward. Our path takes us past cafes crowded with people enjoying the warm morning sunshine and relaxing to the sound of little resident bands. We buy ice creams and Francois, who knows the city well, introduces me to the locations where the third man was filmed. We tread the path of Orson Wells and Joseph Cotton, imagining we are looking out on the bomb-ravaged, divided devastation of the city. Gingerly, we descend the original staircase from the movie into one of the old parts of Vienna's sewer system, immersing ourselves in a world of rats, smugglers and spies. When we arrive at the cathedral, I am in awe of its sheer size and impressive construction. Looking at the altar, I remember this is where a young Joseph Haydn sang as a choir boy and was known for his irrepressible sense of mischief. The story is told that he took out a pair of scissors and cut off the pigtail of the choir boy in the pew in front of him. The choir master punished Haydn severely and turned him out of the choir to make his own living as best he could. Just as we leave the cathedral, booming thunder shakes the heavens. Francois holds my hand whilst we race back towards the cathedral's entrance to attempt to escape fierce lightning and a torrential downpour. We are only partially successful. The storm remains intense for a full 15 minutes before subsiding to the point where we feel brave enough to risk the journey back to the port. Laughing and somewhat soaked, we walk back to the ship, splashing through puddles of newly fallen water, behaving like a couple of carefree teenagers.
I fervently wish to visit the house where Beethoven lived. I've always loved his music and I'm determined to visit his former lodgings. I'm on my own today and have an agenda to fulfil. I hire a taxi to take me to Heiligenstadt, where the composer stayed on several occasions, including the autumn of 1802. Beethoven had been advised by his doctor to get away from the heat and noise of Vienna and spend the summer months in tranquil surroundings. The house is built round a small courtyard with a linden tree in the centre. Here, Beethoven rented two rooms and a small kitchen which looks out onto the garden. A wooden staircase leads from the courtyard to his rooms. I am actually allowed to run my hands up and down the keys of Beethoven's own piano. To think that he sat at these very ivory keys, scribbling furiously as notes poured from his head onto the page. This is one of the most thrilling days of my life. It was in this building that Beethoven, unable to hide his increasing infirmity, wrote a document, the Heiligenstadt Testament. It is a letter addressed to his brothers, Karl and Johann, a letter that was never sent. O oh, ye men, who think or say that I am malevolent or stubborn, how greatly you wrong me. For six years I have been a hopeless case, aggravated by senseless physicians, cheated year after year in the hope of improvement, finally compelled to face the prospect of a lasting malady. How harshly I am repulsed by the experience of my bad hearing, and yet, it is impossible for me to say, speak louder, shout, for I am deaf. What a humiliation when men stand beside me and hear a flute in the distance and I heard nothing. Or someone hears a shepherd singing and again I heard nothing. Such incidents bring me to the verge of despair.
Emerging from Beethoven's house in a euphoric state, I board the first passing tram, omitting to check whether or not I'm heading in the right direction. To successfully navigate the tram network, or for that matter, a bus or rail route in Vienna, you must understand that every single stop either ends in Strasse or Strada. Having failed to work this out, I start to wonder if there is something wrong with my hearing, as every stop sounds like the last. Concentrating hard on my trusty map, I finally make sense of the streets and regain my bearings. In the early evening, I meet up with Francois at Palais Ausberg to attend a concert. We are dressed formally. He looks so handsome in a sharp suit and correspondent shoes fashioned from leather and buckskin. This palace is richly adorned with marble busts of Roman emperors. A broad staircase with a red carpet leads to the first floor and the salon. As guests fill the hall, Francois holds me back and we are left alone in the hallway. Music from Palais Ausberg's own resident orchestra floats down the staircase like a ballerina in full flight, opening with shimmering strings and a solo horn answered by short staccato chords in the woodwind instruments. The music swells, then dies away. A descending bass motif leads the orchestra quietly into an iconic waltz. Francois takes me delicately by the waist and we link hands, swaying gently in time with the rippling music.
Eastern gateway to the Vakal Valley lies the city of Krems, set in one of Europe's loveliest river landscapes. Its history extends back more than a thousand years, which is immediately apparent in the look of the streets and squares, the old monasteries and churches, townhouses and fortifications. Francois and I explore the old main cobblestone streets and we watch a chocolate-making demonstration. A little street market sells everything from pussy willows to hollow bread, all served from a mobile bakery truck. We are delighted to find there is an organ concert in a local church, a recital of the music of J.S. Bach. The thin elderly organist looks so frail against the massive pipes that we fear he may be disintegrated by the instrument's mighty sound. But he launches into his programme with gusto, furiously working the pedals with his feet, pulling organ stops out with deft flicks of the wrist. It is a fitting dance to accompany the music, which fills the entire building to the rafters, and the very floor seems to sing under our feet. How is it that music gives us such great pleasure? It is difficult to work out just why this comes to pass. Is it the rise and fall of the melody, the subtlety and the invention, the ever-changing harmonies? Whatever the answer, it is profoundly satisfying to share and appreciate this experience of such memorable intensity. The music of Bach is of the highest intellect, the work of a sublime creative genius.
the next day brings a beautiful morning. We are near to our final destination, Passau in Germany, where three rivers converge. I rise early to enjoy this last stage of our voyage. Apricot orchards decorate the banks with snowy blossoms. The river is serene, coloured dark green in the shade of half-drowned trees. Eagles, herons and pairs of black storks hunt for food and the air is filled with a distinctive chant of cuckoos and a chorus of frogs. A small deer bounds through the fields. Francois joins me. He sits down beside me, placing his head gently on my shoulder. He kisses me lightly on the forehead and in his eyes, for the first time, I see a vulnerability and tenderness that touches me to the bottom of my soul. We sit and silently watch the river flow past in a lazy motion, hand in hand, as thin reeds softly dance in the warm afternoon air. Nothing said, nothing to excuse, nothing to explain. Back on board, it feels like the last day of term at school. I've met so many fascinating people from all over the world. Throughout the week, we all got to know each other a little better. We've become a multinational family, all with our own little quirks, preferences and personalities. As we sit eating, chatting, drinking and being merry, it's hard to believe that just a few days ago we were all total strangers. I don't want to leave. I wish to trap this moment in time when we're all together sharing our stories and experiences with one another. I take one final trip to my stateroom to check that I've left nothing behind and on the door is pinned an envelope. I peel it open and inside is a delicate pressed flower and a miniature card. It simply reads, Thank you. Nothing else. No number, no name, no address. I feel a short pang of sadness and a touch of disappointment at Francoise's casual ending of our encounter. But I like to think I'm a realist. This has been a classic holiday romance, no more. I shall cherish the memories and move onwards. I repeat my mantra. I am no starry-eyed teenager. I am a strong, independent woman. This has been an unforgettable experience. So much to remember, such a precious time, a trip of a lifetime. The sights, sounds, tastes, romance of the ancient and majestic river. The beautiful blue Danube. Viking Voyages was narrated by Debbie Wiseman. It was written by Justin Pearson and the editing and sound production was by Mike Brown at Original Sound. The music in this episode of Viking Voyages was... The Danube Waves, composed by Jan Ivanovich, performed by the Budapest Strauss Ensemble, conducted by Istvan Bogar. 
Thunder and Lightning Polka, composed by Josef Strauss, performed by the Slovak State Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Christian Polak. Piano Sonata No. 14 in C-sharp minor, the Moonlight Sonata, first movement, composed by Ludwig van Beethoven, performed by Jenu Jando. The Blue Danube Waltz, composed by Johann Strauss II, performed by the National Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Debbie Wiseman. Orchestral Suite No. 2 in D major, composed by Johann Sebastian Bach, performed by the Locrian Ensemble of London. And the opening and closing music was Den Reisender, The Traveller, composed by Debbie Wiseman, performed by the National Symphony Orchestra, conducted by the composer. <laughs>